At Marshalls, our buyers hustle to get you great deals on great gifts. Cashmere sweater, nice. You'll get brand name quality gifts for everyone on your list and yourself too. Hello, designer fragrance. More brands, more quality, more gifts for less. At Marshalls, gift the good stuff. being cool. We are that corner of the geek show that likes to look at the good, the bad and the bewildering of movies, either starving about or by pop stars. You know, the podcast covers a broad range of musical and cinematic genres, from documentaries to science fiction, from country and western to hip-hop. I'm your host, Graham Williamson. I'm a filmmaker who writes for the geek show We Are Cult and Byline Times, and I've been joined this week by... Hi, I'm Joe Miller. Um, I'm part of the Geek Show. I work on the animation, uh, the animation podcast for the Geek Show, uh, Dreaming Machine. But I'm a big Outcast fan, hence why I'm here, joining Graham on his excellent uh, podcasts. Indeed, yes, you've revealed who we're doing, and when we say Outcast, it can only be one film, right? There's there's a voluminous amount of outcast-related cinema. We could have done a lot of Andre Benjamin's work as an actor in everything from uh, the Jimi Hendrix biopic All This By My Side to High Life, Claire Denise's Space Jizz movie. But we have chose the... I think it is the one film where they're together, isn't it? Uh, I, I, I can't get over the fact that's how you described higher life, by the way, but let's let's continue. <laughs> it, I described it like that so frequently that our mutual friend Ollie was worried he was going to like go to the cinema and actually ask for a ticket to Claire Denis' Space Jazz movie. Mm-hmm. Sadly, he <laughs> didn't, because uh, that, that would have been pretty funny. Uh, but that's how it will forever now be known. Absolutely. <laughs> yes. I, I, we totally digress, though, don't we? Yes, Idlewild. Um, Idlewild. Yeah, as far as, as far as I'm aware, um, it's the only movie they're both in. That's correct. And it, it came out at a point where you would think an Outcast movie would be easy money, right? Yeah, it was um, the first big thing they did after the, you know, the absolute monster um, speaker box, The Love Below. Um, yeah, you know, massive selling album, like massive singles, ma- massive cultural impact. Uh, yet, I'll let you <laughs> carry on with the backstory. Yeah, <laughs> uh, and and yet this film basically tanked, didn't it? It uh, it cost ten million and made twelve point six million, but also. I mean, it, it's we, we've done a lot of films that have not made money on this show, but are still well remembered. But this just seems to have vanished from people's memories, which is the thing that I find most extraordinary. It's bizarre, isn't it? And no one ever yeah. talks about this. Yeah. No, absolutely not. Even though its soundtrack album is, as we go to press, the last Outcast album. Uh, who who would have thunk it at the time? 
Absolutely no one, no. But um, we should talk a bit before we get into it about how important Outcast were the all. I feel like, unlike this film, their reputation has only really grown with yeah every year that they are they are dormant. I mean, there's so much you could say about them. It's kind of hard to know where to start. I mean, they've been called the Lennon and McCartney of hip hop, like the kind of dynamic they had. Um, mm. You know, the player and the poet, like that kind of cliche, like massively simplistic generalization, but it's quite a nice way to think about it too at the same time. Yes. And, you know, also putting um, like Southern hip hop on the map as well like in the mainstream. Absolutely. Yeah. It's, I mean, it's very hard to think back to a time when Southern rap wasn't recognized as a major cultural force. But when they started out in the mid 90s, hip hop was basically coastal. It was an entirely coastal affair. Yeah. And, you know, yeah, you had like other. Yeah, the other groups as well, like Goody Mob and stuff like that. But like, um, they were like the biggest ones, definitely, and they mm. really broke through. And then, um, and so they did a series like incredibly, incredible, critically acclaimed albums. Um, with ama- uh, amazing songs, and they kept progressing as a band and changing to the mm. point where Speaker Box of Love Below was. I mean, that came from um, I read that that came from Andre Three Thousand wanting to do a solo album. Which yeah. is totally break off. Like, and now this was at the height of their success, right after Sanconia, mm. which gave them like Miss Jackson, like arguably the first like really big UK. Yeah, I remembered Sanconia being the one that um, launched them in the UK. Although I wasn't sure whether it was just because it was the first one that like I was aware of. But yes, I think you're right. Yeah, and when we look back at Equemini, has a lot maybe gets more critical plaudits, arguably. Or it's yeah. like a very, very close room thing with Sanconia, but I agree. I think that was the biggest one in the UK. And then at the height of that success internationally, they break off to do, um, Thousand wants to do his own solo album. Mm. The outcast management and big boy think that's a really bad idea. Yeah. <laughs> they work out a compromise solution. They're doing two solo albums and packaging it together as outcast. <laughs> and so, you just had the spirit of like constantly changing and doing new things and constantly developing. Like all led by by them, and they've been like the lead writers and producers. And um, if you look at it in production credits, I think it says Earth Tone Three, but like as the main producers, so that's basically their pseudonym for like them producing themselves and and the music styles and production is so advanced and kept changing. Um, so yeah, it's just it's so even though that like the biggest hits like Hey Ya yeah, came out of that album, it was like a big risk to do two solo albums and, and not just yeah. keeping the same vibe of what they were doing before. Absolutely, yeah. And I listened to Speaker Box The Love Below again in preparation for this podcast. And this is gonna be a pretty continual refrain when we're talking about Outcast, but I just feel awful for Big Boy Man. His record is so good, but it's Speaker not- Box. Yeah, it's brilliant. Yeah. But it, it's not completely insane like The Love Below, so it gets <laughs> overlooked. It doesn't include one of the biggest singles of the 2000s. So, you know. I, I think, I mean, I think any album almost in history would be overlooked next to The Love Below. I mean, the third, isn't the third track into that a conversation with God? Yes. Where Andre is just discussing, like, 
his relationship troubles and confirms that God's a woman, just so everyone's aware. Mm, yeah. Um, and then it just, it's, it's got a weird like skit in the middle. Like, um, and it just, it just goes all over the place. It's almost like a concept as well, like a story of what's happening to him. Like um, lots of relationships thrown in as part of that, of course. But, um, and uh, the music, st- you, you jump into this like, very heavily Prince influenced, mm. like amazing funk and strings and all the kinds of things being thrown in from the start. I think almost anything would be overwhelmed by that. But as you say, Speaker Box is great. I mean, um, mm. I mean, how can the song that starts off, how can an album that starts with like ghetto music be over overshadowed when it's like ghetto. three songs in one and there's all these tricks going on and craziness? Um, there's some great, you know, great songs on there like Bowtie and Unhappy's brilliant. Like, yeah, no one ever remembers that one. And um, Church is great. Yeah, um, War. Some of which appears in the movie. We'll be talking yeah. about, of course. Yeah. So no, you're right. Um, and there is um, I mean, a lot of the critical notices. To be fair, like, do comment that Speaker Box is unfairly overlooked, and there's yeah. been like, praise for that record too. And I think yeah. the the way the way you moved it quite well in the singles chart. Like so, hey, I didn't totally take Wipe all, all the glory away. Yeah, like, uh, that that song and roses, which has a a big boy verse in it as well, did really well. Yeah, um, but it, it's true that the love below is just this fantastically ambitious thing, and I think you can you can tell the difference by looking at the guest spots where like. Speakerbox has a lot of great collaborators on it, but they're people like Killer Mike and Sleepy Brown, who Outcast had always worked with. And The Love Below has the actress Reservio Dawson on it. So, yeah, it's definitely going a bit broader with its uh, with its influences. Yeah. yeah, no, for sure. And yours, um, you know, if you look at, like, is it Flip Flop Rock or something, like, on, mm. like uh, near the end of Speakerbox? I mean, just hip-hop royalty like in a row it's amazing um it, it, it also comes but... doesn't it it comes at a time which i don't think it would be unfair to characterize as the low point of hip-hop in the around the sort of early noughties when a lot of the guiding lights of the 90s scene are dead uh they've been replaced by people like 50 cent who would just devoid of all inspiration there's a whole load of novelty singles that just seem designed to sell ringtones and suddenly you've got this mad funk influenced double album which is like nothing else so yeah um a a band who both defined and transcended their time and what what would you say the what would you say the thinking behind Idle Wild is as a project? How would you like encapsulate the the sort of? <laughs> um, that's a great question. Um, and you know, I think in like hundreds of years' times, people will still be theorizing about this. And... <laughs> <laughs> I think it. <laughs> but it's it's a strange. I mean, I came to it first via the album. So I yeah. listened to the album first before I saw the movie. Um, As did I. And yeah, and the album is a really weird thing um, because mm. half of it is, what's the first half almost, is kind of more hip-hop focused and, and more what you'd expect from them 
historically and then the other half is it really goes into the film's vibe of this speakeasy era and uh like the 30s america and and all that kind of very and jazzy and swing and all that kind of stuff so it's kind of um and the kind of lyrical matter is really weird as well um i remember you know hollywood divorces that you know that thing we can all empathize with you know not being treated <laughs> as a serious actor in hollywood yes. yeah, i totally empathize with that one very right? <laughs> <laughs> um so the album's a really weird thing um i think the film itself though and the whole concept was them thinking well we've proven we can do what we want we've achieved all this great success with everything we've tried yeah um the love below especially shows that Andre 3000 wanting to branch out and do different things. Mm. Um, you saw that through the whole decade, like you, you did an animation series, like as well, like so you wanted to like, branch out and do different things. Um, and you had a couple of other film credits around the same time, so um, it just it made sense for them to do a movie in general to start with, yeah. let's say. And then like they worked with a like frequent collaborator Brian Barber to like like work out exactly what that movie would be. <laughs> Mm. and then yeah and the and the film more successfully than the album like goes for a specific vibe where it's as i say it's 30s america but they can still throw in modern hip-hop elements and dance moves and things like that yes the exact comparison that came to mind when we watched this was what if baz lerman was good You're not a Baz Luhrmann fan. Hate the guy, but it's got that same kind <laughs> of using anachronisms to draw um, draw comparisons between different eras. Because this is set in the Prohibition era. At one point, yeah. someone basically says the subtext and points at a bottle of liquor and says this shit sells like cannabis. So in a strange way, this is the closest outcast have ever come to doing what was expected of rappers back then and telling a gangster story it's just gangster yeah yeah can, it is a gangster story isn't it I yeah think that's a fair comment yeah yeah for sure um and so that i mean that works quite well to be fair um and as i say the film's more successful than the album and having that certain like uh, uh like vibe to it as i said um but it's still it's still weird because they thought they have like songs from like three different albums on there yeah that's the strange and... thing having crafted as you say this thing where that there's a load of songs that have this very specific remit of you know let's take 1920s music and do a hip-hop spin on it Basically, none of that is in the film. There's a load of stuff on the album, like Mighty O and Morris Brown, which were, I mean, they weren't Hey Ya size hits, but they were moderate radio hits in the day uh, that are not in the movie at all, which is really weird, I think. And even weirder, there's some movies that even more closely, or like period pieces, you know, um, that that have Mm. that uh, that jazzy, like... um, big band vibe to it yeah that aren't in the movie either <laughs> yeah that would yeah. definitely go with it and so not just the hip-hop songs but some of the songs later on in the album would perfectly go in and they got dropped too um and, so it's, I, it's weird 
I suppose yeah. on one level, I can I can kind of understand it because I think one of the running problems that movies, that, that pop musicals specifically have, is that, you know, when people pay a ticket to see a movie with a band in, they often want the hits. You know, it's like going to a concert. You want to hear the songs you love. You feel a bit sort of disappointed when they say okay we just worked this one up well i don't actually but that's the cliche um i don't either actually but but yeah. a lot of people do I yeah. understand what you're saying and that's why the the pop musicals that work are the ones like mamma mia i mean work in a commercial sense are the ones like mamma mia which have all of the hits of abba that you want to hear and the ones that don't uh, things like True Stories, despite True Stories being an absolutely brilliant movie, but yeah. David Byrne wrote a whole new album to accompany that film, and everyone was like, "Oh, so it's not got Once in a Lifetime on it." And I, I understand <laughs> that maybe they were trying to avoid being True Stories by putting in songs from, particularly from Speaker Box, The Love Below, but. Even then, the selection of songs from Speakerbox, The Love Below, is really weird from that perspective, isn't it? They make some odd Yeah, it is weird. And I think it maybe goes with that vibe of we can do what we want and we're choosing to. Yeah, (laughs) yeah, maybe. I think that might be part of it. Um, And so, you know, they can go for... I'm not sure if they're deep cuts, but the songs that weren't like the obvious singles... Uh, from those other albums that are, weren't designed for this movie. Um, yeah. Yeah. I did sort of wonder, and maybe, I, I think this is probably being unfair, but I couldn't shake the feeling. Maybe people around the band were thinking, okay, Speaker Box, that's going to be a massive hit. It's full of great club tracks. The Love Below, eh, you know, maybe maybe people will get into it. Who knows? Anyway, that doesn't matter because we have front-loaded this movie with all the classic bangers from Speaker Box that everyone loves. And... <laughs> What do you mean Bowtie wasn't even a single? What the shit's going on? <laughs> Maybe. I mean, it's hard, it's hard to tell, isn't it? Um, yeah. Because not all that kind of like background label stuff has been reported. And um, they did recognise Hey Yars potential because that was the lead single. Yeah. Um, so it's like, not mate, in this movie, though. True, true. Yeah. Um, yeah, so... It's kind of hard to tell that history of it. I mean, I do. It does seem like, I mean, it, it obviously there would be producers, but they get like producer credits as well, like the mm. uh, like Outcast themselves, and and the directors worked with them on lots of previous mu- music videos. HBO is a studio. I don't think has a massive reputation for interfering in like artists' work and that kind of thing. This is so true. I, I yeah. and the amount of weird things in it, like you know the bottle with a rooster on who randomly talks to him with no prior explanation, things like that, suggests to me that they had a relatively free hand in what they chose to do. Yeah, I think that's probably true. And I think it's at the budget level where people probably felt comfortable saying, you know, no one's going to lose their shirt on this. Because um, 10 yeah. million for a period piece is not expensive. Yeah, and there's quite a lot of um, there's a lot of big set pieces and yeah. like you know effect work and things like that. So it um, in different sets and things. So 
you know, it, it really it looks great actually for I was surprised the budget was that little when I read yeah. about it as part of the research. Um yeah. So it, it starts off, doesn't it, in classic gangster movie style with this voiceover which fills you in on the lead characters, um Rooster and what's Andre three thousand's character called? P- Patrice or something, is it? Percival, yes. Rooster and, yeah. and Per Percival, yeah, Percival. Apparently, yeah, P, uh, it's P. One of the song titles is PJ and Rooster, but so I, I'm surprised they just use a abbreviated name PJ during it. Uh, but yeah, yeah, Percival, named after their main musical influence, PJ and Duncan, of course. Oh, of course, everyone's favorite influence. <laughs> um, it's a very strong opening. I think. I think the narration just throws you straight in. You're like into the two main characters. And it's got a very snappy like, direction to it, and you're instantly sucked into the story. I think the opening works quite well. Even It does go on a while, admittedly, but it does work quite well, I'd say. I like how it lays out the story. I think the only problem I have with it is that Andre 3000 sounds like Harrison Ford level bored when he's reading it out. <laughs> but it, it is kind of nice to know that there is one <laughs> thing in the world that Andre Benjamin isn't brilliant at. And it turns out it's reading <laughs> uh, voiceover. That's it. Everything else, he's uh, a fucking prodigy. No, nobody's perfect. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I've, I have to admit, when I first saw it, I thought he was maybe a bit too, I'm not sure if laid back's right term, but like not a bit too like monotone and yeah, like in general. When I rewatched it, I think his acting performance was better than he gave it credit for, and he works yeah. quite well. Yeah, um, I would agree. But yeah, I, I get what you're saying with his narration, though, for sure. I think that that you know you have to be into it, or why why should we be into it if you're not into yeah. it? I think acting-wise, they're both very good in it. Um, and I, I was expecting, I think, again, from, you know, there is this perception based partly on their work and partly on that one Key and Peel sketch that uh, Big Boy just sort of sits in his chair and suffers while Andre 3000 has a series of madder and madder ideas and that's outcasts dynamic. But, of course, that's not true. And... Uh, I was expecting Big Boy to be less engaged because he's been less interested in acting since, you know, this. It doesn't seem to be a passion of his like it is for Andre, but he's good in it too, I think. I, I, I think he's brilliant in it. I was really yeah. impressed by his performance. Um, it made me think he should act in more things. Um, he, he just I does mean, that I... character really well and his comic timing and and is the way he interacts with the characters works really well. I was really impressed by him. Yeah, um, I agree. And I, yeah, I think there's more to the dynamic than sometimes like it's captured in the media. Like, I read an interview uh, where Big Boy releases a solo album, mm. um, and he, he said um, the um, like the, the the single was a ma- the lead single that was a massive hit in the US. And was Andre 3000 suggestion for like what the lead single should be? So I said, oh, sorry, I own one for saying that. So the fact that they were just chatting as friends in the background, even though they've seemingly gone on wildly different paths. Yeah. And I'm sure like Big Boy would love to do more Outcast stuff um, with him. But like, you know, they still got a friendship there and they still got healthy respect for each other. Um, so it doesn't surprise me so much that he would be into the movie and like committed to it, even if Andre mm. th- it was 
his mad idea originally or something. Yeah, no, I would agree. And it, it's good that they hold their own because they have an absolutely stacked cast in this. I mean, there are some amazing actors in this uh, and Terence Howard. Uh, there's Titan, <laughs> Ving Rhames, Bill Nunn, Paula Patton. You know, it's a really good cast. I just love that Terence Howard Dick was really well done. <laughs> I, I think I, I think we should address this because that, that was the first thing I said after it finishes. This is one of a string of movies made in the mid to late noughties that tried to persuade us that Terence Howard was intimidating and he still looks like a guy who you could basically knock over with a sneeze. I just do not yeah, care. Yeah, all. he kind of has this pouty teenager vibe at the start as well. That's <laughs> <laughs> his like, performance. Um, yeah, this cast is amazing. It's, it's amazing yeah. who they got in. I was very impressed by that. Um, although, you know, they were huge stars, at, especially at the time. So I, I can kind of see why they got those people in. But once oh, again, absolutely. that's partly why I thought the budget would be higher for the movie. Yeah. You know? No, um, definitely. And, you know, there's, yeah, there's some great performances. Um, I, I think the, the only disappointment for me was the female uh, representation. Um like both in terms of the lack of any like major female characters driving anything in the story, um, and like the lack of anything to do really. Like Macy Gray does great with her like small bits in the movie, mm. and she's like a treat to watch. But I, I just felt in general like the female roles were underwritten. They could do more of that. But putting that aside, like I think I still think the cast is great and the characters are really good. Yeah, I think my my main problem with the female roles it's it's one of those things I would never have known about if it wasn't for like black people actually opening my eyes to it. And once they do, you can't unsee it. Is that all of the women who were meant to be desirable are light skins, and all of the women who were meant to be like comic relief or matronly or otherwise sexless are dark skinned and boy once someone opens your eyes to that it does really smack you in the face but i i did like paula Patton's performance in this and i thought she had a pretty generous role i think if maybe if more people had seen this it would have been because she She's always someone who's had a career mm. that's been very close to being big quite a lot of times. And yeah. it's never quite clicked, uh, which is a shame. Yeah, yeah, you're right. She She's really good in it, actually, and she has a mm. bit more to do. Um, I still she, think she can maybe add more to do beyond that, to be yeah, honest, think, in the script. Yeah. But yeah, I, I take your point, though. Because there's a nice little gag buried in it where she initially presents herself as a famous singer who they've booked uh, to play at their speakeasy. And for a while, she is getting the full-on Star is Born narrative arc. There's a great, that, how great is that scene where she has to win over the audience? And there's just that one asshole whose voice is mixed higher than everyone else going, ah, oh, God, she's doing it again. Like it's one person, <laughs> Statler and Waldorf from the Muppets. That was great, wasn't it, that scene? Yeah. yeah. Um, because it, it did that, like, thing of like you know they struggle at the start with the performance like that but they did it yeah. in a really funny way 
Like you didn't yeah, mind absolutely. if his, that scene's been done before. Like it's really funny and clever. He did feel like in their shoes on stage, mm. into like a baying crowd. Yeah, but then they, it's quite clever that that she's revealed to be an imposter. She's just pretending to be this famous singer that they've booked. The famous singer that they booked turns up, and it's Patty Labelle, which I just think is a great casting gag. That <laughs> yeah. Patty Labelle turns up. You think. Oh, of course you're the famous singer because you're a famous singer. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, I mean, the only thing, yes, it was cleverish. I swear it's a plot of Clamity Jane or something. It was in yeah, another movie that did the same kind of thing. <laughs> there, there's, uh, there's a lot of great imposter stories, isn't there? It's, it's a trope that I'm always quite fond of, so I was happy to see you turn up here. It's very uh, we Principal yeah. Seymour Skinner, I think. Uh, Armin Tanzarian, you mean? Um, yeah, well, we can't mention that on pain of torture, but yes. No, you can't. <laughs> um, yeah, for sure. So, um, yeah, that was fun. That was kind of fun. And there was an actual... I mean, what I liked about it, compared to other, like... It sounds really... Uh, vanity projects, let's say. Musical yeah, vanity yeah. projects, of which you specialise so well in your podcast. Yes. Um, it, had an, it had an actual plot... Mm-hmm. And it had like characters who were flawed, which I know shouldn't be a big deal, but it kind of is compared to a lot of other <laughs> like, films I've seen. I think that's very um, true. You know, yeah. the, the the two leads have like like on like Andre three thousand and Benj- uh, Big Boy's characters have like um like massive flaws. Like you know, the latter's a womanizer and partying instead of being with his family. Yeah. Um, and yes, and. And Andre 3000, his uh, Percival is, um, you know, lacks confidence, like just knuckles down, doesn't like stand up for himself or take chances. Um, mm. It's just refreshing, like that they had like those flawed characters throughout the majority of the movie, rather than being these perfect people we had to idolize. Yeah, although it, it's one of those things, isn't it? When as soon as Andre 3000 turns on the charisma it's impossible to buy him as a flawed character. Like, you just look at that true. guy and think you're a megastar, obviously. Yeah, yeah true. Um, but that's not bad. I, 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 don't mind that. I kind of gave it a pass on that. Yeah, you're right. Yeah. Like, objectively, yes, shoot. But because the music scenes were so good, I was like, yeah. oh, it's fine. I, I'll but go the, with it. The, I mean, the music scenes are all good, but I think the one over the end credits is just... If musical cinema was in a healthier state than mm. it is right now, someone would have cast that guy in, like, a big mainstream Hollywood musical because that is absolutely classic showmanship. That is absolute Broadway shit. Yeah, for sure. Um, and it's kind of weirdly... Like some of the reviews I read said that um, the tone, the, the movie had, the tone was inconsistent, and I disagree with that. I think the tone's fine. Um, I think the pacing's a bit weird. So they have yeah. like they have these great musical numbers like near the start after the intro, then we have like you know twenty minutes of plot, <laughs> a really, really yeah. intense plot, and then at the end, the very very end, we have two amazing musical numbers in a row. <laughs> That are just yeah. like bolted on the end. They're great. I totally agree with you. But just like, so I think the only, so I think the tone works quite well actually. And like, it's meant to be anachronistic. That's fine. Like, oh yeah, they'll cast yeah. them do whatever music they want. <laughs> That's great. <laughs> so it, it's it, I just think the pacing was a bit weird. Like when those musical numbers came in, maybe, and 
sometimes mm-hmm. they did they did quite well trying to in, integrate them into the the plot to be fair yeah um, but is like with variable results I think as as musicals have become less of a regular kind of cinematic thing, uh, people miss that musicals have a very precise structure. You can't just put a, a bunch of songs in a story and expect it to work as a musical. There are very specific reasons why songs have to come in. There's a certain kind of shape to a musical that is satisfying. I think out of all of the recent... Um, movie musicals and obviously discounting something like Spielberg's West Side Story where yes, of course that gets it right, it's West Side Story, how could it not but I think in terms of like new movie musicals, the one that's nailed that structure the best is actually Annette Mm. which is strange because on the surface that film is so unconventional but once you dig into it, it's really clear that Ron and Russell Mail absolutely love musicals and know how to to lay out the songs and bring recurring motifs back in at a certain point. Well, but I, I've not I've not seen that uh, that particular movie, but I do take your general point though um, mm. about like there's a good and a bad way of doing it, and yeah. it's more complicated than people think. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, I think my my main problem with it is just that the, the gangster stuff is not as compelling as what's around it. And I don't know whether I'd be singing a different tune if they had an actor who I rated more than Thames Howard in the in the role of Trumpy, which is a very strange name to, to be thinking about in 2022, isn't it? Like, yes. That has a whole different resonance than it did back in 2006. <laughs> Yeah, for sure. Sadly. But I just thought yeah. I, I could have happily gone for a musical hangout set entirely at the speakeasy where the only sort of point of jeopardy is Paula Patton's character and is she going to be found out as an imposter? I think that would be a much better film in my opinion. Maybe, yeah. I, I kind of respected the film though for having these like two plots. Mm. Um and actually, like they barely interact with each other at all. Um, yeah, the Lau Cassio's main characters are very separate still throughout a lot of the movie. Um, and I quite admired the ambition to like have those two plots and like cut between them. Mm. It, the gangster stuff wasn't as compelling. I think you're right. It could have like it could have done more. It wasn't a very um, political film either, generally, with the odd exception. Um, or at least not overtly or directly. Um, and there's a lot of stuff you could maybe have done with that era and prohibition and and, and things like that. I don't know. Um, I mean, not every film has to do that, to be fair. Um, but it just... Uh, it's sort they, of... It's, yeah, they could maybe have done more of that side of it. It's there in the subtext, I think. I think drawing a parallel between, like, hip-hop and its association particularly strongly at that point with gangster narratives and the history of gangsterism in America and using prohibition is like daring the audience to make the connection between prohibition then and prohibition now and how that fuels so much crime Um, I also think there's, there's something interesting about making a film about like these historic uh black communities because there's been 
there was so much of an effort to erase them from history. And I, I like the idea that Idlewild, the town in Georgia, which is a fictional town, um, although, you know, this history is, is so underexplored in the media that I, I did have to look mm. up whether it was real or not. But I like the implication uh, that it's kind of a, the consolation prize Harlem, that if you can't go to Harlem and be with, you know, Langston Hughes and Billy Holiday and all of the great black intelligentsia of this era, you sort of go to Idlewild and it's kind of the same, but it's not really. Yeah, I think that's a fair point. Like, I think I use the word like over direct political mm. comment in the script and things, but you're right. There are there are some other layers to it just by the nature of the setting. Yeah. Um. Yeah, for sure. And it, it's interesting because when I was listening again to Speakerbox the Love Below, it did remind me that Outcast were one of the few mainstream bands of the early Bush era who did do political stuff. Like most people, just got. Shit scared of that by 9-11 and there, there was a i remember there was a great guardian review of an album that marilyn manson released uh back then which uh i thought was funny then and is funny now because he's a fucking rapist and fuck that guy um but it said uh, he seems very eager to find ways to shock the listener and at the moment you think have you considered making a mildly worded criticism of American foreign policy? Because that really mm. seems to do the trick at the moment. Yeah, for sure. Um, I mean, that. I mean, what's great is um, one of the um, songs they did include from the Ida Wild album was um, like a gorgeous, like gospel number, which has like like the, some of the lyrics are about like soldiers fighting abroad and things like that. Yeah, as beautiful really powerful number it um it's just a shame that because of the lack of attention the film and the soundtrack got in relative terms like things like that didn't like have as much attention as they deserved really yeah i think so um it it, it does have some fantastic songs isn't janelle money on one of those songs on idle wild uh yeah she is and she features in the video for the um morris brown single I launched oh. this era as well and served as an advert for the movie. Oh, I'll have to rewatch um, so, that. So, so yeah, um, it was a great way of bringing her into public consciousness for, for mm. sure. Yes. Um, but yeah, the, the whole Trumpy thing just never took off. I can't believe they called him Trumpy. Like, even before, <laughs> that's not a good name for a gangster, man. I, I, I just... Yeah, he had this kind of like whiny tone, didn't he? And like, he wasn't very intimidating, as you say. And his name was Trump. You can't really take people that seriously with that name. <laughs> They're trying to be an intimidating gangster, I guess. <laughs> no, I would agree. Yeah. Um, but it's worth going back to, isn't it? We would agree on that. Well, the th uh, yeah, the film in general. Oh, yeah, yeah, for sure. Yeah. I mean, and the kind of, um, I think I said to you another time, in terms of the album and that era, Mm. I have a weird soft spot for like, like career-ending, like a messy, yeah. <laughs> late era albums and eras and things where um, they're often like, even though like the album's extremely messy and the film mm. didn't like have the impact it was meant to, but like, I just love the ambition and 
that these two these two really incredibly talented strong personalities just doing their own thing and like going out it's really like fun fun to watch it's mm-hmm. like yeah if we're gonna do this kind of like movie we're gonna really do it we're gonna have like dance numbers and like um yeah like, this amazing cast and like we're gonna have this really ambitious doesn't quite gel plot <laughs> like all this kind of stuff um so yeah i think the ambition of it and the quality of the music and most of the acting means like mm. it's it's really easy to return to and and you know it, it's due that kind of like cult status really i think like, it's not quite had yet yeah i would agree uh, i think it makes more sense now we're living through um, an apparently unending economic depression than it did back in the mid noughties uh, it's got that going for it but also i think i think that, you know the mainstream is just more ready for something like that when when you think about how like the defining hip hop artist of the 2000s was probably it probably was like 50 cent or I know you're a big fan of early Kanye. I know I should be. I know it's probably objectively good, but God. Um, <laughs> He's trying to ruin everyone's memories. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, and, and now, sort of from the mid 2010s, suddenly you have Kendrick Lamar in the mainstream, and the album mm-hmm. he like, really broke through with Pimp a Butterfly is kind of in the same spirit of what outcast were doing here of of looking back at the history of black music and saying you know how can we fuse this with hip-hop how can we point out commonalities between what people were saying back then and what people are saying now i think it, it feels much less like a tough sell for an audience than it did in 2006 yeah hopefully hopefully and we've had like some we've had some like really like iffy like movie sense for music. <laughs> like just by by comparison, it's like good too. It's like okay, we we underappreciated that. I was doing who, 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 who would you say has lowered the bar enough for uh <laughs> I will upset people if I say Please do yeah, it's what the podcast's about. <laughs> well I mean you've obviously um, you got the really mainstream stuff like uh, jukebox, like Mamma Mia, and um, mm. Walking on Sunshine, <laughs> all that oh, kind of stuff. Yeah, yeah we, we somehow failed to do a Walking on Sunshine episode, haven't we? How strange! Oh uh, my, I, oh my goodness! Yeah, not at all because I, I mean, forgot the film existed. Yeah, I mean, and with the Me Too era, like one of the plots in that is very awkward to watch, where this guy like harasses this woman, like <laughs> whilst, whilst, whilst badly doing karaoke all the way through. <laughs> um, and also, like you know, um, I've previously did an episode with you on burlesque. Um, oh, of course, yes. And like, which it you know, similar pop star vehicle, but where you know we have to worship and adore the leads in it. And how the and get get annoyed that the talent's not being recognised sooner. So it's just like compared to things like that, you know, this has set a much higher bar, I think. That's very true. Yeah, I, I hadn't been thinking about that aspect of burlesque, but it's true, isn't it? You, for all I've said, that Andre three thousand isn't entirely plausible as someone who might fail, like 
Christine Aguilera's character in Burlesque never has so much as a second where you, you're allowed to doubt her. And <laughs> it, it really makes her quite unsympathetic, like aggressively flawless. I mean, some of the direction in it's like really good. I'm just looking at my notes. Yeah. Like, um, there's some great like visual gags and uh, uh, little tricksy things. I mean, it's just like, is it when um, I, I know he's called Percival. I'll just keep calling him Andre Three Thousand. He wakes up. And there's like all those clocks on all those clocks in the wall that are like singing along to one of their songs. Yeah. Um, and like you know the amount of CGI money thrown at like such a unnecessary thing <laughs> isn't needed <laughs> whatsoever. <laughs> But it's great. It's just really fun. Um, and, like, you know, so there's a lot of, like, um, like style, like, and verve to, like, the, the direction of some of the sequences they do, I think. Mm. Yeah, I was looking at Brian Barber because he hadn't appeared on my radar, although obviously I have seen his Outcast videos, including for The Whole World, a song which I adore. I understand yeah. why a lot of people find it weirdly off-putting, but I think it's just perfect. I adore it. Um, but yeah, he hasn't directed a film since. He apparently spent 50 grand doing a, a previous like presentation to get the job of directing X-Men Origins Wolverine, and he didn't get the job. And I find it hard to imagine that he could have done a worse job directing X-Men Origins Wolverine. Oh my god. Um, I mean, I'll totally derail your podcast. Like, you know my massive rant on that film. <laughs> I remember, oh my god. Didn't you, with some of your friends, try a drinking game with it where you had to take a sip every time something dreadful happened? <laughs> yeah. It's like, yeah, let's make him the most powerful guy in the world and then loudly discuss how we're going to betray him immediately after he gets his superpowers. It's just like everything <laughs> was a mess in that film. Everything. Um, yeah. <laughs> uh, I didn't think we'd end up at X-Men. or, But yeah, how, how the hell couldn't he get that job? He, it would have been such, such a better movie if he'd been in charge of that. It's really strange, and I uh, I think that it, it reminded me in a lot of ways of Hype Williams, you know, when he directed Belly, which we did on the as a Patreon episode earlier in the year. And I would like to think that even if you hated that film, and the early reviews of it were stinging, but I would like to think that even if you hated that film, you would say, "All right, there's talent there. It's well directed. If we get him on something." with a bigger budget and a sturdier script, this could be great, but it never seems to happen. And part of me just wonders if it's because the people who tend to be in charge of movie studios just do not enjoy hip hop enough to understand what's great about these films. You, you do get like, um, like some bands and music, like I, I, this is my theory anyway, like happen to be in vogue at a certain point and like mm. then there'll be like bands who were great that people just forgotten about imagine it's the same with directors as well where it's like, where it's like oh they're yeah. actually really good we just forgot about them that <laughs> they existed or they weren't doing a current thing or things got messy or whatever 
I also think maybe in by the year mid 2000s there's still probably that lingering stigma against music video directors that they just do like hack flashy stuff um which is obviously like yeah there, there are some people who that's true of and there are some people who it really isn't I think for all the film is not perfect this film feels like a real movie and I mean, you can hmm. see the cinephilia just from a, a lot of his music videos, but it's really palpable here. Yeah, it is. Um, I mean, some of it, some of the attempts to make it like a proper movie maybe feel a little forced. I, I don't know, but, um, but yeah, like the, the ambition and the the successes the movie does have make it really worthwhile, I think. When you look at the, the big song and dance numbers in particular, you can tell this is someone who studied like Busby Berkeley and Gene Kelly and wants to yeah. to put that theory into practice. I think it's far more than just you know, the standard way of shooting a dance number in a music video is just to cut it like hell and point the camera at someone's feet. And this isn't like that at all. Yeah, for sure. I mean like the the dance sequence showing bow tie um yeah it's absolutely brilliant um and yeah it's not just like cutting for the sake of it or sell over Mm. a substance it's like it works really well it's committed to like the time period and whilst you know having hip-hop elements on it that's fine it's such good music and i've made some notes like um yeah some there's some interesting like um when when there's a shot like there's a zoom shot on percival um after like dramatic events towards the end of the movie where the scenery behind like kind of warps like around him in like one shot as it zooms in. Yeah. Uh, it's just like really like like clever little touches, but that aren't like over the top or overwhelm the story or like a flashy the flashy music video thing you'd like typically associate. Yeah. Um I think like there's some there's some quite good elements of the plot too. Like um I was I wrote down that um the scene with between Percival and his dad was excellent. That was a really interesting relationship. Um, yeah. Because even though his dad was holding him back from his like music dream or whatever, he's not necessarily, there's the show moments where he's not like a bad guy or anything. You, you see it from his perspective too. And yeah. Say, and I'm saying, well, I don't have anything to say to you. What would we talk about? I kind of think that was really powerful. I thought. Um, yeah. There's a level of nuance in that, that you don't expect in a kind of, loosely star is born kind of movie starring a pop band is don't you yeah um i mean the scene with the with big boy in the car was weird though like that was a uh, maybe lacked the nuance but it's trying to be a powerful <laughs> moment when he like a oh, random family and like life lesson you need to learn now but <laughs> I like how he has the sort of Greek chorus of kids, though, who, like, every time someone swears, they all put their hands over their ears in unison. Those are well-trained. Yeah, that's great. For all he's not far from the year, he's got them trained. Yeah, no, that was really good. That was really good. Um, Yeah, and to be fair, some of this praise we're giving the film is because, like... We're comparing it to like worse films. <laughs> yeah, I, but, I suppose I should note that I think it, that particularly the musical numbers look good when you compare it to something that is good. I should make that clear. <laughs> yeah, so it's, it's not like um, it is genuinely good in several yeah. areas too. Yeah, I agree with that. Um, and just the, the other thing I wanted to say was um, 
even though like it's a very random selection of songs, it kind of um, what I like is that they're willing to add little touches to the songs. Like, it's yeah. the geeky side of me, but they they, they add like um, they add like strings to a certain thing, or and they add like extra horn section and and to make it feel like more part of the movie. And just because yeah. they can, and like it's okay to do a slightly different version. Yeah, I really like that as well. It reminded me of um, sometimes Edgar Wright does that a bit in Baby Driver. There's a very subtly different version of Ready, Let's Go by Boards of Canada in that movie, which works really well. And yeah, like you, I think it's it just shows an attention to detail, doesn't it? It shows that someone cares about this stuff, which... which yeah, it does. It does. Yeah. I mean... I mean, the, the She Lives in My Lap sequence is still a bit weird. <laughs> like, how, how they use that song in that like, specific scene. But yeah. I'm not going to criticise it, though, because it's, it's stuck in my head ever since I first saw it, and and it's such a great track. Oh, yeah. Um, and I get... There's, yeah. There's very few scenes in a movie like that, I would say. Like, maybe... <laughs> yeah. Maybe David Cronenberg could do something with it. I don't yeah. know. <laughs> but, um... But yeah, no, that works really well, I think. Um, it's just like, um, it, the, and a lot of these things you can always say are the, you know, because the magical mystery to it, I can say that movie's like really weird and random, but the music's great. Like the music yeah. videos are fantastic. <laughs> um, this like, the music is just uniformly great, but there's more to the movie than that, that you can genuinely enjoy as a film, which is a yeah. good praise, I'd, I'd argue. Yeah, I would agree. Uh, any other notes before we uh, before we? I kept wind writing up? down this. I kept writing down this music is awesome. This music kicks ass. This music is great. <laughs> Which isn't like very yeah. like necessary comments, but the music is great. <laughs> the music is indeed great, and Outcast are great, and you know. For all, it, it sucks that we're probably not going to get another Outcast album. I think Big Boy's solo albums are really underrated. And, I mean, Andre 3000 still manages to guest on about a million singles every year. He's, he's a busy <laughs> man. Yeah, I mean, if he does that, that first, like he did on uh, Frank Ocean's Blonde, on the, sol- yeah. the solo track. Um, if he does that every like few years, like that'll keep me happy. I think that astonishing uh, guest vocal he did. There was a Gold Link song that leaked. Um, I forget what it's called. Uh, Love Third, I think it was called, with Andre Three Thousand and Steve Lacey. It was majestic, and it got everyone really excited about his forthcoming album. And then uh, people heard the actual album, which does not have Love Third on it, and everyone was like. Okay. What, 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 what have you done there? Um, but that Love Third is a great song if you can still find it floating around anywhere. And of course, I just love that sometimes you just encounter him wandering around an airport playing jazz flute, apparently. That's also a thing he does. Yeah. Yeah, as you do. <laughs> as long as he's happy and out there playing jazz flute somewhere, that's all I need to know. All, if Andre 3000 is wandering around an airport playing jazz flute, all is right with the world. 
<laughs> maybe that's a good that's a good place to end perhaps yes if you enjoyed this <laughs> podcast uh you can donate to our patreon at www.patreon.com forward slash geek show where as we mentioned before you get bonus episodes like our one on belly um otherwise please uh give us a like give us a comment share us to your friends give us a review where you get your podcasts that helps us out but until uh, fortnight's time when we'll be back with another free episode of pop screen i've been graham i've been joe and that's your lot thank you for listening mm-hmm.